Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Losing stinks. Nobody wants to suffer defeat in a game, flunk a test, or get passed over for promotion. Losses can feel like stinging humiliations, insurmountable setbacks, like the end of the world. They even push us to quit pursuing something we absolutely love. And yet... Losses can be the most instructive and meaningful parts of our lives and be central to our ultimate success. My guest set out to study and explain these unappreciated upsides of getting bested. His name is Sam Weinman. He's a sports writer, and he shares what he learned in his book, Win at Losing, How Our Greatest Setbacks Can Lead to Our Greatest Gains. And he shares some of those insights with us today on today's episode of the AOM Podcast. Sam and I begin our conversation with how losing is typically a lot more interesting than winning, the difference between losing and failing, and how you can lose without failing as well as fail without losing. Sam then illustrates the lesson in humility, growth, personal responsibility, and resilience that can come from losing by sharing the stories of famous people who dealt with famously big losses, including golfer Greg Norman, soap star Susan Lucci, presidential candidate Michael Dukakis, and speed skater Dan Jansen. We end our conversation with how Sam's study of how to turn loss into gain has influenced his own children and the way they deal with their setbacks. Good insights here on both how to deal with your own losses, as well as to help your kids deal with theirs. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash losing. All right, Sam Weinman, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So about three or four years ago, this is, I guess it's 2016, you published a book called Win at Losing. And it's all about how to be a good loser, what it's like to lose, and the lessons you can learn from losing and the upsides of losing. I'm curious, what kickstarted you on that project to explore loserdom? <laughs> I mean, the original genesis for me was just a challenge I was having with my boys. I have two sons. Now they're 15 and 12. And obviously when I embarked on this, they were younger, but even then it was just very apparent to me that they didn't understand or see any value whatsoever in, in losing and both competitive kids, competitive athletes. And, you know, we had a series of sort of comical meltdowns in various settings And it just became very apparent to me that this was an area that not only they, but everyone can really stand to embrace is that, you know, in every loss, there is a lesson. In every loss, there is an upside and an opportunity to respond in a, in a more constructive way. And so that was the idea. And, you know, ultimately it was this, this concept of, Look at all these amazing, impressive people who have lost in spectacular fashion and look at how they responded and look at how the look at how they are able to point to those episodes as real growth moments for them. And not all of them had these sort of triumphant comebacks from those losses. Some of them, the losses are what define them, at least in the public's eye. But they, even those people can still say, yes, there was a lot of good things that came out of this. Well, and you're also a sports writer. You write about golf. So you, you, know, you encountered losing in your career on a regular basis. And you know, we'll talk about one golfer who lost yeah. you know, monumental. But like, you saw it. Like, you, you saw this regularly. 100%. And I would say one of the things that was very apparent to me, and it's still very apparent to me throughout my sports writing career, is a game ends or a tournament ends or whatever. And, you know, some of you would go into the winner's locker room to talk to the winners. Some of us would go into the loser's locker room and always felt like the story about the losers was more interesting because they 
were a bit more introspective and a bit more willing to discuss what went wrong, which is just a hell of a lot more compelling than, you know, we executed what we wanted to, we came in, we really wanted it, you know, all those cliches from winners, you know, people who, who win are happy and, and, and rightfully so, but they don't really plumb the depths of what happened as much as you do when you lose. And so that was definitely a big part of it as well. I just felt like those were the most compelling stories and continue to be. And the other part is I'm a, I'm a, you know, a sports coach. I'm a youth sports coach with my boys. And it just feels like, and I've said this a hundred times, you know, your, your, your practices after losses, uh, your, your next session after a loss is far more constructive and everyone is much more engaged than after you win, because after you win, everything's great. There's nothing really to talk about, but after you lose, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things to go over and, and build upon. Right. And you make that point that losing, I mean, success can actually get in the way of getting better because you think, well, we won. We don't have to do anything. With losing, though, it really causes that self-reflection and look at what are my weak points so I can get better at that. Exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, there's there's a million examples of people who've had sort of uninterrupted success early on in their lives. And when they are faced with setbacks, which everyone is, they struggle more than the people who kind of, you know, have their you know, the typical bumps in the road and have to kind of scratch and claw their way out of it. You know, you have guys who are, who are, you know, on the fast track at, a, at some point and then, and then something goes wrong and they're not equipped to deal with it. So in the beginning of the book, you, you, you make a distinction between losing and failing. And I think often in our just common conversation, common vocabulary, we kind of conflate the two. We kind of, mm-hmm. they're the same. Losing and failing is the same, but you think it's important to recognize the difference. So first off, what is the difference and why do you think it's important to make that distinction? Yeah, I think that to me, the best way to explain the difference between losing and failing is that losing is just an event. It's just a fact. It's something that happened. Failure is an interpretation of what happened, and it's uh, somewhat a reflection on you know, poor execution or inability to ex- execute or, or some sort of you know, poor, poor effort. And the reason why it's important to distinguish between the two is that sometimes you lose and it's not really your fault. Things just happen a certain way and you need to recognize that there's not much point in beating yourself up over something that just went the other way. Whereas a failure is an opportunity to examine and analyze what you did wrong, where you fell short so that you can adjust accordingly. And, you know, it's, it's possible to to lose without failure, and it's it's also possible to to fail without losing, which I can explain. That sounds sort of vague, but to me, it's like you know we have all these things that go our go against us in life, and which we would characterize as a loss. And you know sometimes it's something that we did that we can we can learn from and 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 sort of beat ourselves up over. But there's also times when it's like you know what. I'm not going to beat myself over this because this wasn't, this wasn't on me. You know, I mean, like not to oversimplify the, this current moment in time, but look at this, you know, look at this global pandemic, right? Look at, look at all of the, look at all of the, the hardship that has resulted from this period, people, you know, losing jobs and, and, and businesses are failing. Well, a lot of those, again, businesses are, are suffering, I should say, just to not confuse it. Well, people are losing jobs in large part, because of an, uh, an event that's outside of their control. So that's a loss. You know, when you're talking about a failure, you know, someone loses their job because they screwed up X, Y, and Z, 
you know, it's important to note that this, that difference. No, yeah, I think if, if anyone's played sports, they they understand that distinction of how you can like lose but not fail, but fail but not lose. I mean, like I've had those games, I remember in high school where in football, like we played really sloppy. Like it was just terrible. But like we still ended up winning because the other team just played sloppy. And so we won, but like it really it was a bad game. Like we failed. We didn't play up to our potential. But then we had those games where like you did everything right, but the other team just did a little bit better and there's nothing else you could do. Right. And that's, that's a concept that I talk about in the book. And, you know, for, for young kids, that's a very difficult concept to understand. You know, you walk into a locker room after losing a game 2-1, and you might have actually played one of your best games of the year. And, you know, again, that's a loss, not a failure. You know, you did everything, almost everything right. And, and to your point, there's tons of times when, you know, yeah, we won, but, you know, it wasn't because we did anything that well. There's so many things that, that, that we can improve upon. And, you know, there's a lot of things that, that we, we need to address here. And again, that's a really, that's a really difficult concept for, for really anyone to, to really wrap their heads around, but especially when they're, when they're young. So when you set out to like research and write this book, you interviewed or, you know, yeah, you got interviews with all these people, like famous people who lost in spectacular ways. And Mm -hmm. they're like, they're known for losing. Mm -hmm. When you, when you made these reach outs, like did a lot of people, were a lot of people hesitant to talk about it or were most people pretty open about it? I mean, there were definitely people who I reached out to who were not open to doing it and either they didn't respond or they respectfully declined and, which is fine. I mean, like, you know, the, the famous example is Bill Buckner, who, you know, as you probably know, is the, the first baseman for the Boston Red Sox ball rolls through his legs, 1986 World Series. He's kind of synonymous with this, you know, egregious error in the worst possible setting. I reached out to him and he declined through the Red Sox. I don't begrudge him for doing it or for declining, but you know, I would argue, and what from what, what I've read about him is that there's a great story to tell about how that episode shaped him, and it was a lot of pain there. So I don't want to say it was it would be an easy story to tell, but you know there was a number of people like that, and then you know the people who who did ultimately agree to talk to me were people who. Who, who, you know, basically buy into the premise, who bought into what I was selling, you know, I mean, and there was a little bit of flattery from me, you know, the, the, the pitch was, Hey, I want to talk to you about why you're such a loser. The pitch was, you're someone who is known to have sustained a really significant loss in your profession or in your life. And my perspective is that there's a lot that people can learn from how you handled it. Would you be open to discussing this? And of course, you know, you butter them up in that way. They're like, yeah, that sounds great. Thank you so much. And so the conversation went from there. Well, and what's interesting too is that it seems like in the past, I'd say decade, like people, this idea of like talking about failure has become more acceptable. I mean, it's something people don't like to talk mm-hmm. about, but it's become more socially acceptable. Mm-hmm. But you make this point that like, yeah, we're more open about talking about failure, but we don't, sometimes we don't do it in a really productive way. What do you think is going on there? Well, I, I, a couple things. I think uh, you're right. It's become kind of like a corporate cliche. You know, losing is you gain from from failure, and your you know your business fails, and there's something to be said for that. And I think the reason why that's that's great in concept, but it's not always great in execution, is that people are sort of glossing over the real hard parts. Like they want to point to their failure and want to point to everything that that went wrong, but they're not really willing to do the work and the real sort of investigative work into their shortcomings. To, to really grow from it. You know, Brene Brown, the author, has talked about it as like gold plating, uh, sorry, gold plating grit, meaning like you're willing to sort of point to all of the 
benefits of your setback without actually going through the real hard work of unpacking it and learning from it. And the you know sort of metaphor that I use for it is someone who goes to the gym and they walk on the treadmill for you know 10 minutes at really low speeds and then they get off and pat themselves on the back for a killer workout. Well, yeah, they went to the gym and they worked out, but they didn't really do the work to really gain anything from it, right? So there's got to be some pain. There's got to be some discomfort in that process for you to actually grow from it. And so I think when we talk about people who who don't really confront failure in a constructive way, that's what we're talking about. Gotcha. All right. So let's talk about some of these these famous people who lost. And you start off the book with someone from your domain of golf, and it's mm-hmm. Greg Norman. And you use him as a way that how losing can can teach us humility. So for those who aren't familiar with Norman's career, yeah. can you give us a thumbnail sketch of it? And then what was his magnificent failure? Or well, not sure. failure, we'll say loss. Sure. Uh, well, actually, I think it would be both in this instance. But so Greg Norman, you know, one generation earlier was the premier star in golf, you know, Great looking guy, immensely talented, had some, you know, incredible, incredible, you know, runs atop the world ranking in golf. And in in many ways, he was sort of the poster boy for success. But in some ways, he also was not a very approachable guy. Like he was, you know, he's just a better golfer than you. He's better looking than you, way wealthier than you, not very identifiable to the average person. And then along the way, he, you know, had some really notable collapses in major championships and the biggest one and really kind of like the like you know i would say the defining moment of his career was the 1996 masters it was the tournament he wanted to win the most he had opportunities to win earlier in his career and in 96 he takes a six shot lead into the final round and like the famous moment is he's preparing for the next day he's walking out of the clubhouse saturday night in a and a, a writer goes to me and says, Greg, not even you can f- this up. And sure enough, he does. He, you know, he blows the masters. He, you know, falls apart on the front nine and is, and is he's defeated by Nick Faldo, who's you know, kind of his rival of the time. And the reason why that was such a important moment was not because he lost, but because in that moment, this incredibly impressive sort of hard to associate or identify with character became immensely human because everyone just ached for him. You watch the final nine of that that broadcast when it was already apparent he was going to lose, and it's painful to watch because this guy's dream was dissolving, you know, right before him. And, you know, his press conference afterwards, he was, you know, very honest about how much it hurt. And, you know, he got this huge outpouring of support. And so the reason why I always think of Greg Norman as such a great loser is because Here's a guy who had all these amazing successes throughout his career, and the real moment of connection with the public was was when he lost. And you know, I wanted to, and for me personally, you know, I was in college at that point, and I just started getting, getting into golf, and that was the moment I was like, "My God, this game is so painful." And this guy, I feel for this guy who you normally wouldn't think you could feel for a guy who's a you know multimillionaire superstar athlete. And so that was the story I wanted to tell and and Greg was very very accommodating and in, you know willing to talk through you know every part of that process. 
And when you when you talk to him, I mean, this has been decades since that happened. I mean, has he come to peace with ever not in not ever winning a Masters? I mean, he never like he won all these other tournaments, but like the Masters, mm-hmm. the Green Jacket, he never yeah. got it. Did he come? To, did he, has he come to peace with that? Yeah, because he had to, right? I mean, it just it was you know it, it, if it wasn't that day, it was not soon after that he realized I'm never going to win one of these, and so what am I going to do? You know, am I going to just am I just going to consistently lament and, you know, rue everything that, that went wrong, or am I going to see what I can sort of gain from it and learn from it? You know, if not, if not as a professional golfer, but as a person and as a businessman. And so I think he, he came as close to as peace with it as, as you can. And as you talk to him, like, how do you think it's that, that experience of, you know, not achieving that goal that he had, how did that influence his post-golf career or and even not even his, his career, but just him as a person, did he become like more approachable? Is that one of the yes, things that happened? A hundred percent. I think, you know, again, that was like a real humbling moment. He became a much more approachable, probably a, a little bit more willing to laugh at himself and make fun of himself. I mean, Greg Norman appeared, appeared naked in the ESPN body issue at age, whatever it was, 61 or something like that. I mean, there's a little bit of hubris there still, but it's also a little bit of humility. Like, listen, I've already been, you know, exposed in other ways earlier in my career. This is no big deal. And, you know, professionally as a, as a kind of a businessman, he's got a, you know, big line of clothing and wine. He's got a huge sort of multifaceted business. And I think he's had a lot of successes, but also some failures. And he always says, you know, because I failed in such spectacular ways, you know, on the golf course, I'm willing to be, you know, more flexible with, you know, setbacks and failures in other aspects of my life. Yeah. I, one of the other stories too, like he would, if he would have won the masters, he would have been one of the first Australians to win the masters. But then I guess a couple of years ago, one Australian guy actually won. Yes. And, and Norman kind of, he, I mean, he's a really competitive guy. If I were Norman, I mean, it'd be easy to see, like, I'm going to be resentful of this. I could have been me, mm-hmm. but it seemed like Norman, he didn't do that. He was really supportive of yeah. this guy. Yeah. Well, again, that's like to, to your earlier question, right? It's like, did he come to, did he, did he come to peace with it? Well, at that point, when Adam Scott wins the Masters in 2013, Greg Norman is, you know, well past his prime as a player. And he realizes, well, I'm not going to win one. And the mature and sort of admirable thing to do is, is throw my arms around this guy and and celebrate his successes, which is you know not something that you can easily do, but a lot easier to do when you've had some practice as a as a loser. And something that I mean, I think what he did, what allowed him to do that, and you talk about this too, is you know the way Norman talked about his failure. Like I think after he lost, his family was just despondent, and I think he said, "Just like, hey, look, yeah, I didn't get it, but look, I've made so much money." hitting a little mm-hmm. white ball. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're fine. We're going to be okay. I mean, right. he, he did some reframing to help him, I don't know, help him digest the, the loss. Well, 100%. And, that, and that's like a big theme throughout, throughout the book and throughout all these stories is, you know, with every loss, there is the inevitable pain. But in order to sort of move forward, you got to find, you got to frame it in a way that's palatable to you. And so for him, it's, you know, it was that. It was... Look at all the other, look at all the things that have gone my way in life. Am I really going to complain about this? It was also saying, you know, here are the lessons I can learn from it. And I think again, going back to this idea that like, not the most approachable guy beforehand, you know, through this loss became you know far more relatable than than ever before, and was embraced in ways that he never would have been had he just you know cruised to victory. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. 
Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the United States? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer a free plant consultation forever. So I use Fast Growing Trees to order not an indoor tree, but an outdoor tree. There is an oak tree that was in our front yard that died a few years ago due to heat stress. Had to cut it down. There's been a blank spot that I've wanted to put another tree there. I wanted a maple tree that turned bright red during the fall. And I went on Fast Growing Trees, found the tree that fit the criteria that I was looking for. Turns bright red. It's a maple tree that turns bright red in the fall. So if you want to try Fast Growing Trees, right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when they use code MANLINESS at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using code MANLINESS at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code MANLINESS, offers valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. 
There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. And now back to the show. All right. So another famous quote unquote loser you talk about is Michael Dukakis, who famously mm-hmm. lost the presidential race to George H.W. Bush. I guess that was mm-hmm. 86. That was 88. 88. 88. Yeah. So some of our listeners are probably too young to remember the 1988 sure. presidential election. I was probably eight at the time or six. Mm-hmm. So what did, so let's talk about Dukakis. What was his career like before he ran for president? And then just talk about his, his presidential campaign and why it became like synonymous with losing. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, to, to answer your last question first, it became synonymous losing because he's kind of like the poster boy for just getting completely blown out. Like it was, you know, he he was, you know, a really one-sided, one-sided loser in that election and so, sort of humiliating. Like, you know, you look at all the elections over recent years, they're usually, you know, a couple points margins one way or the other. And Dukakis, it was never even close. So he's sort of this guy, you know, even if you are young and you don't really know it, he's sort of synonymous with blowouts. And so how does a guy look at himself knowing that? So that's one of the reasons why I was intrigued talking to him. And I actually, you know, when I, when I set out to talk to him, I didn't really know the full story of his career prior to that point. And, you know, what's interesting is that he was a guy who his big goal was to be governor of Massachusetts. You know, went to Harvard, had some early success in government, ran for governor of Massachusetts, uh, won the election. And then four years later, he lost the Democratic primary for for re-election. I mean, that's never happens, right? You're the incumbent governor and he was defeated by a challenger. And, you know, he's, he talks about that as being like an absolute gut punch. The real, the you know, far worse than the presidency because he was voted out of office and it was a real sort of referendum on everything he had done wrong in, in, in office. And the amazing thing about that is you know, he has, he has four years to think about it and think about next steps. And he takes a look at what he did in his first go around as governor and what he could have done better. And, you know, sort of scratches his claw, scratches and claws his way back to, to run again. And he wins this time. And he says, you know, I was a much, much better governor in the second go around in large part, because I learned from all the things I did wrong in my, in my first term, you know, I wasn't, nearly as uh, interested in other people's opinions. I kind of just, you know, pushed through my agenda without really listening to other people. And it was really detrimental. And because he was such a better governor second time around, learning from his mistakes, he has, you know, great success. It starts to get a national reputation, ends up winning the nomination for the Democratic primary in 1988. And again, you know, early on in that campaign, midway through the summer, he actually was beating George H.W. Bush in a lot of the polls, and it looked like he was going to win. And then, you know, we can talk about all the things that went wrong from there. Yeah. So, yeah, what what did go wrong? Like, he had it, like, it looked like he was going to win, but then it just went went south real fast. Yeah. Well, and the interesting thing, kind of back to, back to this idea of losing versus failing. Well, what happened in that campaign was, like, that was a real 
turning point in national politics because George H.W. Bush, his campaign went got got pretty dirty. Like they they went after Dukakis in a in a pretty savage way. There was some campaign ads they ran about his crime record that were were probably probably unfair, you know, subjectively or say objectively speaking. And they there was an episode where Dukakis sort of was riding on a tank and he wore a helmet and he just looked comically bad. Like it was a bad look. And they pounced on him and they just hammered him. And you know, think about Think about national politics now. All this stuff seems pretty tame, uh, comparatively speaking. Back then, it was pretty vicious. And you know, you would think all these years later, the Michael Dukakis would say, "Yeah, the reason I lost is they fought, they fought dirty, and it was unfair, and that's why I lost." And that would be the way a lot of people would frame the loss. And he was like, "Actually, no. You know, they did what they needed to do, and I didn't respond the right way. You know, I could have responded to all those things, and uh, I could have found a." you know, a better way to answer a lot of the charges that were lobbed against me. And I never did. And that's on me. And that's a really impressive stance to take because again, a lot of the, a lot of what we talk about in the book is understanding, you know, when is it someone else and when is it you? And to be able to point to your own shortcomings and be really honest about that is a really, it's a really healthy thing to do. And I would submit it's a really impressive thing to do because it shows that you're always you're always looking to to be better. And even now he's you know eighty plus years old, his his willingness to accept that and acknowledge that is is I think um, is a, a real good lesson for the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, I think you use him as an example. You bring in this research about growth mindset, uh, fixed mindset from Carol Dweck, mm-hmm. and you know it, it seems like Dukakis had a growth mindset. He never like thought, well, I. I lost. That's just the way it is. There's nothing I can do about it. It was, well, I lost. There's something I could have done. Maybe I could have done something, something differently. And that's a good attitude to have. And it's it's a hard, I mean, look, it's really hard to do. It's really hard to take the blame for a loss, particularly on a, such a magnificent level. But you can definitely grow if you do. Totally. And I just think, you know, blaming my, my experience and my view is that blaming very rarely leads anywhere productive. And so... You know, the more that you can sort of just look at look at your part of the the equation, and you feel like there's a little bit of there's a little bit of power in that. Like, I you know, here's what I could have done. Here's what I should have done. It's a lot better than saying all these you know forces conspired against me. So, one of my favorite stories you highlight in the book is the story of Susan Lucci, which is interesting because like I'm not she's a, she's a for those who aren't familiar, she's a soap opera star. I'm not. I never watched soap opera except like when I was sick in elementary school, and it was on after The Price Is Right. And that was the only thing on, but her story really, I mean, it was captivating. So for those who don't know who is Susan Lucci and what's her story about failing or losing? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I feel like I'm dating myself with all these, these stories. Cause like, you know, they are kind of a little bit more my generation, which it doesn't sound like we're that far apart, but like, you know, yeah, if you're right now, Susan Lucci's name doesn't mean much, but she was this soap opera actress. Not that I was a soap opera viewer myself, but like she, you know, the one thing you knew about soap operas was that, you know, there was going to be an Emmy Awards and that Susan Lucci was going to be nominated and she was going to lose. And it was like, it was comical. Literally 19 times she was nominated for a daytime Emmy Award and she lost to the point where it was sort of like a pop culture joke. You know, people would refer to, you know, Person X or, you know, Team X as the Susan Lucci of this, you know, the Buffalo Bills when they lost in four straight Super Bowls were the Susan Lucci of football, you know, and you can go down the line. Like that was like a kind of a running joke. And so when I was, you know, researching the book and thinking about the book, I'm like, I wonder what Susan Lucci actually thinks about being 
you know, people being called the Susan Lucci of, of this because of, of their proficiency in losing. And it turns out she had a really great story to tell. And there was, you know, there's a number of levels to it. One was, first of all, you know, asking her in your view, you were nominated for all these Emmy awards and you lost, you know, why was that the case? What did you learn from it? And she said, actually, there were things I learned from it. I realized that, you know, in talking to judges and learning from judges, there were some things that that I had done in my performance and in my my acting that rubbed people the wrong way or rubbed judges the wrong way. She was like overly dramatic or whatever whatever those elements were. She actually saw there were there were parts of it that were that were off putting to to people who who saw her and even as this, you know, larger than life star, you know, exorbitantly wealthy and a bit of a diva, she was like, well, you know what, I got to do something about this because it's obviously an area that I need to, to improve upon. So she did that. The other thing was she had a family and, and kids and, and a son, ironically enough, who was a, you know, a very good high level, you know, competitive golfer, played college golf and made a go as a professional. And he had his own, sort of ups and downs trying to make it on tour. And he said, you know what? Amazingly enough, I was I learned how to sort of stomach a lot of the adversity that I faced trying to make it on tour from my mom and watching her approach to her profession and sort of, you know, in her own way being kicked in the stomach every year and getting up and going to work the next day and trying to be better. And it was it ended up being really instructive to him. So it, you know, it was a it was a bit of a symbolic story there. You know, like the the ultimate loser. You know, what what can you learn from her? And and in her case, there were some real tangible lessons, both for her internally and also for the people around her. Did did she have like a sense of humor about it? Like, or did she did she did yeah. it really did it really ping her to like not not win? I think both. I think both. I think you know. I think it hurt. I think she talked about how she would go to these Emmy awards and you know hope for the best and get dressed up and they would have the camera on her as soon as they announced the winner. And she'd have to kind of have that fake smile that you always see. And she's like, that sucked. That was really hard. So it did really hurt her, but she also had a great sense of humor. Like she was on Saturday night live as a host, you know, and the only reason she was the host is because she was the consummate loser and people knew her for that. And, you know, she did a bunch of commercials that sort of poke fun at her. So, you know, you had to have a sense of humor. And, you know, again, going back to that Greg Norman idea of humility, you know, that's an, you know, having, having a sense of humor about these failures in your life is, is the ultimate sign of humility. And, and she obviously exhibited that. Well, and because she had that growth mindset, I mean, she actually took the feedback and tried to get better even like 19. I mean, she was like a veteran at this point. Like, she, I mean, she, at yeah. that point she could have just rested on her laurels, but she continually tried to get better. The results, she ended up actually winning. She did. Yeah. And, you know, she won in her, I think it was her 20th try or, you know, again, when did, when did, you know, think about someone who you were willing to embrace at that point, you know, like a great, a great success that everyone wanted to, to celebrate is when, when Susan Lucci finally won a daytime Emmy. Again, none of us knew anything about daytime Emmys or cared about it, but you just knew this person kept going every year, kept losing, and then finally broke through and won. It's a, you know, it's a great story that people can feel, can feel really good about. So one of the gut-wrenching stories that you told was the story of Dan Jensen, mm-hmm. who was one of the greatest speed skaters in history. Like he was setting world records, yeah. he's winning all these world championships. But when it came to the Olympics, he would just choke magnificently and he wouldn't even medal. Yeah. Like what was going on there? What why why would he perform so well in every other competition? But when it came to the Olympics, he would just just fall apart. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of things were going on. You know, I think 
looking back at the book, it's been three or four years. I think the Dan Jansen chapter ended up being probably one of my favorites because there's so many layers to it and it touches on, you know, a number of things we already talked about, but for one thing, you know, the, the, the real tragic story that is part of Dan Jansen's larger story is that in 1988, when he was the clear favorite to win the 500 meter speed skating event, the morning of the race, his sister died. She had leukemia. They were very close. He literally talked to her on the phone that morning and she passed away right before he started to started the race. And they show him on national TV, the race starts and he falls, you know, a few strides into the race. Understandably so. He's just, you know, kind of a ghost and not really there. And then two days later, there's a thousand meters, even worse in a way. He is leading the race. He's going to win for his sister, all these things. And in the final stretch, he falls again. And, you know, again, doesn't medal, doesn't even come close. And heart-wrenching stuff. Four years later, you know, the the memories of his sister are 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 still there, but you know, he's still back to being the the top speed skater in the world. He had won world championships, but still hadn't won an Olympic medal, goes to the Olympics in Alberville, France, and same thing. Doesn't fall, but you know, really underperforms in both both of his races. And now it becomes this thing. And so so now you have this guy, first of all, it's like the, you know, how do you get past that when there's clearly like this kind of mental block? Well, he starts working with a sports psychologist by the name of Dr. Jim Lair. And there's a lot of kind of unpacking to do about everything that had happened. And, you know, we mentioned, we used the word framing before about, you know, f- framing what had happened to him at, to that point. And he had to to kind of, first of all, look at what happened the first time when he fell after his sister died and realized that, you know, that was what he needed to do. Like there's a, you know, it's a really deep story, but like Dr. Jim Lair and Jansen had decided that, that in some, at some subconscious level, Dan Jansen had decided that he wasn't ready to win a gold medal when it was still morning and that, you know, he almost fell not on purpose, but you know, he fell, there was a reason why he fell in the way that he did. And then it ended up being, a little bit more of a more understandable or relatable episode where when you get into certain events and you put all your focus on the result, as opposed to the process that can be really detrimental. And, you know, it became one of these things where Dan Jansen, you know, whatever, you know, 364 days out of the year focuses on skating his best and his preparation training and, but on the Olymp- in the Olympics, he was thinking about, I want to win a gold medal. I want to win a gold medal. He's standing at the, f- at, the, at the starting line, and that's all he's thinking about. And that's a really dangerous and unhealthy way to approach really anything. And the turning point for him was, was just that. So he had one more chance, the 1994 Olympics, and he decided that I'm gonna, I don't care about winning a gold medal anymore. He really started to think about, I'm just going to devote myself to the process of training and skating and, and enjoying what that journey is and letting go. And in doing so, uh, in his very last race, he set a world record and he won the gold medal. And so there's just like a, you know, it's just an amazing story, a ton of different lessons in there and, and really inspirational. 
Yeah, that lesson, the big takeaway from it is like focusing on process, not results. That idea, you, it's very visceral in sports because there's so many other stories like Dan Jansen's where you had these people who performed at the top of their game, but they got started getting focused on the results and then they just crashed. And then they have this reboot period where they're like, I'm going to learn how to enjoy the sport just because I enjoy mm-hmm. it. Totally. It's like the most, It's in some ways it's very counterintuitive, which is in order for you to achieve the, the thing you want the most, you have to almost trick yourself into not caring about it too much and find yourself finding something else to focus on. And, you know, I'm in the golf world. That's kind of my profession. And there's so many stories about guys who are like, rather than think about making birdie here, I want to think about just making a really good swing here and just, you know, putting a really good stroke on this putt. And, and, um, that, that is a far more effective and, you know, constructive way to be than, you know, I really want to win this tournament or, you know, make this birdie. Yeah. I mean, that's where you're getting philosophical there. Cause like the Bhagavad Gita talks about that. It's like, it, mm-hmm. one of the things it says, like you have the right to the work, but not to the fruits. So you just, yeah. you just, you got to focus on the work and just don't care about the results. A hundred. And it's, and it's, and it's really hard to do, but I guarantee you it's a far more beneficial way of being. And I would, I would, you know, I would also argue that, you know, it's also allows you to frame everything that happens as a result of those efforts in a much healthier way. Because if you're focusing on the process and you do fall short, you can say, well, I achieved my goal because my my goal here was to be faithful to the process, to do all the things I, I could do and could control to be successful. And if, if, if I did all those things, I'm not going to really lament falling short. So, so one of the hardest things about losing, particularly for athletes, I think this is really hard for them because their whole identity gets tied up in their, their sport. Um, this can happen to other people too in business or work or whatever. But like whenever you lose, like as a Greg Norman, like the only thing you do is golf, like that's Mm -hmm. hard or worse yet, like you lose, like you can't do the thing anymore. Mm -hmm. That's you've based your whole identity around and you use Sarah Hess, a soccer player in her career to to highlight, what do you do? Like, how do you handle loss where you, you, you can't even do the thing that you love and you've, you spent your whole life building your life around. Yeah. And I I did use Sarah as the example. And there are, you know, there are examples everywhere of this, of people having to kind of like look at their identity and what they're associating with and and trying to find a way to push forward. And in her case, it was, you know, she was a star soccer player, U.S. women's national team. She was on that 99 team that, that won the women's world cup. And then, you know, a year later she's on the bench in the Olympics and she was miserable. And then, not long after that, she blew her knee out and had, you know, very severe reactions to a knee surgery and basically was very really sick. And along the way, her entire identity of being, you know, an elite athlete is gone. And she's this sickly person who's not playing anymore and not doing what she loves and not feeling good about herself. And, you know, that's, that's really difficult, whether you're a professional athlete or if it's your, if it's your job or whatever it is. And, you know, in her case, it kind of forced her to find again, like framing, find something to cling to and find another way of sort of building herself back up and, and feeling good. So, you know, there was a couple things she did. One was when it was very apparent, she wasn't going to play soccer anymore. She, sought to get her degree in psychology and became a, you know, a psychologist. And ironically enough, she works with a lot of high level athletes and a lot of her work is in, you know, dealing and helping them deal with the pressures that athletes face and, you know, having to frame success and obviously framing 
when their careers go sideways or go away altogether. So that was kind of one way that she dealt with it. And the other way she dealt with it was personally, again, this is someone who had like a really serious allergic reaction and a knee surgery, and they were afraid she was going to die and couldn't walk. And in the middle of this really intense period of rehabilitation, she says, you know what, I'm going to try to run the New York marathon, which was like lunacy. Like they were like, you you can't walk. And she said, you know, I'm going to try to do it. And she would literally walk for five minutes on the West side highway in New York until she started crying. And then it was five minutes became 10 minutes and 10 minutes became, you know, three or four miles. And she ran the New York marathon through pain, but you know, kind of the use of sheer will. And it was just kind of finding something else that she could build toward. And so, you know, the lesson of Sarah Hess is obviously persistence, but it's also about, you know, when things are taken from you, you have to find something else to look as your new mountaintop and a, you know, a goal that you can build toward. And, you know, she's a, she's a real lesson in that. No, that, that, I thought that was really good. And what I think it was interesting. She found it, it was like, you know, it wasn't completely new. Like it was tangential. Like she found something that was related to what she was doing before, but differently. Yeah, completely. I mean, again, just like, you know, the, the, the ask is not for you to reinvent yourself completely where you've, you know, flushed away everything else you've experienced to that point. It's, you know, finding the, finding the elements that you still can use in a new context. Yeah. And I, I've no, I mean, even like for athletes who don't lose, like they, they had a great career, but their career ends. You know, maybe they're a collegiate athlete. They're not going to go on to the pros. That can be hard because they have to figure out what I'm going to do now. And I, the ones that, I, that I've seen that they thrive and succeed, like they find something that allows them to stay connected to the sport, but mm-hmm. differently. They might become a coach or they become a manager or they get involved in, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, some, something related, but like they, they reinvent themselves, but they build off what they did before. Yeah. And again, I think like we always think about, we always talk about athletes in this setting. I think it's like, you know, these guys who are gods in their teens and twenties and then their careers end, and there's not the same level of adulation or the same level of sort of positive reinforcement. You know, how do you, how do you replicate that? And the, the answer is you don't, you have to find sort of satisfaction and, um, you know, positive reinforcement usually from within, which is, you know, that's, that's not always an easy thing to do when you've, you know, been in stadiums full of 80,000 people screaming your name. So one final group you talked about in the book was this Columbia football team. This was like from mm-hmm. the 80s. First off, I didn't know Columbia had a football team. <laughs> um, that's part of the problem. That's part of the problem. So like, what, what was their story? And like, what made these, what made these guys unique? And what can we learn about losing from them? Yeah. And another great story. And again, kind of dating myself because this is like in the same way that Susan Lucci was sort of synonymous with losing when I was growing up. So was the Columbia football team because they had lost 45 straight games in the mid eighties in the Ivy league, which is obviously not the highest level of college football, but, but you know, these were, this was real football. It's division one, a, I guess, one double a. And, you know, there were guys in those programs who literally went to college as freshmen in the fall and graduated as seniors in the spring and they never won a football game. And so two questions, right. That, that occurred to me was a, how did you deal in the moment? How did you get through that period when it was, you know, all, you know, incredibly frustrating and humbling and other students and, you know, you're are making fun of you and newspapers are, are mocking you. That's the first question. The second question is how did it shape you afterwards? And, you know, I talked to, I don't know, a dozen of these guys and a couple of things were very clear. One was none of them said it was easy. All of them said it was incredibly difficult, 
but they said that, first of all, they all benefited from it in ways that they insist they would not have benefited if they were, even if they were, you know, middle of the road. Like they said, the fact that it was so difficult and so painful made us hungrier once we entered the workforce. It made us really loyal and committed to one another because we had been through this this really cathartic experience together. And, you know, we're, we're, our team is closer than other teams because of this, you know, shared misery they experienced. And they're also, you know, like to a man, far more persistent and, you know, dedicated in their professional and personal lives than probably other, other teams. Like they say, you know, all of us have been married for 20 years plus all of us, a lot of us have had the same job. Like this, you know, the, the word they use is stick to Like they, they had to develop that skill as a result of having as much disappointment as they did in their, in their football careers. And so, you know, I love that story because I love talking to these guys who are still, you know, they're all, they're older than me. So they're all in their fifties now all really close, like, you know, kind of a band of brothers, not to like liken what they went through to guys who go to war. Cause that's obviously a whole other level, but you know, on some level there's this real, you know, bonding moment that takes place when you go through something like that together. And why do you think they were able to do that? Because like, I think a lot of people, if they just lost over and over, you'd get jaded. You'd be like the why bother? I think you had that experience with one yeah. of your kids, right? It's like they got smoked by this hockey team and they're just like, the yeah. second half is like, why bother go out? Like we're going to yeah. get our butt kicked. So how do you how do you avoid the why bother effect? Well, I mean, I, th- I think some of it's a testament to the people who, who stuck around because it's worth noting that I don't have the numbers in front of me, but like, you know, if there were 25 guys who started as freshmen that year on that team, only 12 were stuck around to, as seniors. So at some point, you know, guys did drop off and did kind of enter that why bother phase. And so, you know, one would argue that there is, you know, sort of certain guys just have some inherent resilience and they were, they were willing to stick it out more so than others. But it's also worth noting, I think, I think it's in the same chapter. I talk about the fact that like this idea that some people are like naturally more resilient maybe, maybe you can start out that way, but resilience is something you can very much develop and, and kind of foster over time. And for whatever reason, the guys on that group did do that. And I think, I think at some point, and this probably, probably was true is that, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of wanting to stick it to everyone else by showing them that they're not going to quit, you know, like all these guys dropped off and, and you know what, I, I want to prove either to myself or to others and, or to the guys who are still with me that, that I want to, I want to see this through. And, um, you know, it's, it's an incredibly impressive skill. And, you know, again, this guy, Nick Leone, who I still keep in touch with, who is one of the, you know, kind of quote unquote stars of that team. He says that when I went for job interviews, like, you know, it was actually a real asset because people were so impressed that I saw this through and I sustained as much as I did in college. So you beginning of this conversation, you said you started this book because you had sons in sports and you mm-hmm. want, and they had some like meltdowns because they lost and you wanted to teach them about losing. Have, have you been able to, like, has this stuff rubbed off on them? Or like when you try to like <laughs> tell them about the Columbia football team, they just like roll their eyes and like, yeah, 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 dad. Like, do you see an effect? I do. So they're, they're actually, it's funny because they're literally like lurking in the background while I'm talking to you right now because they're doing this homeschooling thing. But the, the, the short answer is yes, they are incredibly sick of hearing me talk about it because I've been talking about it for years, you know, I'm never going to say that like, oh, they're, 
you know, model losers now because of me, you know, they still struggle in ways. But I do think the one thing I say that's an important point to make in the book is like being able to accept or embrace losing is not, does not suggest that you're not competitive. In fact, you probably are more competitive if you're, if you're able to lose well. And it doesn't mean that you're not going to have these, these moments of frustration. The difference is that a day later, two days later, you are better equipped to put it in perspective and and learn from it. So like the the most recent example is my my oldest son who again lurking in the background has become a pretty good golfer. He's already better than me and he's he's starting to enter some junior tournaments and he played his first kind of junior tournament. He was 15 years old in a division with 15 to 18 year olds so already kind of up uh, up against it against older kids and you know it was really difficult and he you know when it was, when it was, you know, as soon as, as soon as it was over, he's like, I'm never doing that again. You know, I want to quit. I can't play golf. All those things that we all go through and we're, you know, incredibly frustrated. And then, you know, a day later, two days later, he's like, actually the experience was kind of fun. I, I enjoyed parts of it. I, I want to do it again. I learned about what I did wrong, what I need to work on as a result of it. And, you know, I'm not at all taking credit for him developing that mindset, but I think, you know, he's more willing to, to go through that exercise of sort of seeing what the upside would be, you know, maybe as a result of me, you know, hammering it as much as I have been over these past few years. All right. Well, hey, Sam, this has been a great conversation. Is there someplace people can go to learn more about your work or what you're doing now? Yeah. Well, I'm the digital editorial director of Golf Digest, you know, so obviously golfdigest.com is, is my my professional home and obviously plenty of stories of of losers there and you know it's it is a topic that I tend to gravitate towards just still even writing about golf so you know I've definitely read about that and then I have my own my own website samwyman.com which has more information about the book when it losing I'm on Twitter Sam Weinman so you know people can get me there for sure all right well Sam Weinman thanks for your time it's been a pleasure oh it's been my pleasure thank you my guest today was Sam Wyman. He's the author of the book, Win at Losing. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Check out our show notes at awim.is slash losing, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years about pretty much anything. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family family member who you would think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the AWIM podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.